Today I'll be reading from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4 and 10 through 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you were right in your, in your hmm, verdict and justify when you judge. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. It is now time for our children's Bible hour. If you are here and have a... Some of the oldest wooden structures on earth have lasted as long as 1,300 years and were built with intentionally burned wood. This burning process transforms the outer surface and forms a protective layer that is highly resistant to decay or destruction by the elements. Sometimes life can be intense. We can find ourselves burned by bad choices or by difficult circumstances. Scripture is filled with examples of women and men who encountered difficulty, experienced transformation, and were able to overcome. When the heat of life intensifies, God wants to work in your life and make you resilient. Again, we're so glad you're here today. Singing was wonderful. It's good to be together to praise God. This is the last message in this sermon series we are calling Resilient. We have been looking for the past several weeks in Scripture at different people who have overcome setbacks and struggles, who have been able to show resilience in light of bad circumstances or bad choices. Sometimes it's because they were just dealt a bad hand. Sometimes it's because they put themselves in a bad spot by their choices. That's the nature of life, isn't it? The thing about every one of these sermons, the thing about every one of these stories from Scripture is that the ability to be resilient, to overcome, to bounce back, does not come from within. It's not our own strength. It's not our own knowledge. It's not our own ability. It's certainly not our own goodness. Every time in the stories we've looked at and every time in our life, it comes from the incredible grace of God and the redemptive power of God at work in our lives. That is certainly the case with today's message, when we sin against God. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11 today. If you have a Bible, you're going to want to open it up so you can follow along and track with us. 2 Samuel chapter 11 today, when you sin against God. Author John Ortberg tells this story in one of his books. It's a story that I think many of us can relate to. I'm going to try to tell it in his own words. Early on in marriage, we sold our old car and bought our first real piece of furniture. It was a sofa, a pink sofa. But for that much money, it was called a mauve sofa. And we talked to the guy at the sofa store, and he told us how to take care of it, and we took the mauve sofa home. We had young children, and so you can guess the number one rule in the home. Do not sit on the mauve sofa. Do not eat near the mauve sofa. Do not touch the mauve sofa. Do not think about the mauve sofa. In any other chair in the house, you can freely sit. But on the mauve sofa, you cannot sit. For the day you sit therein, you shall surely die. <laughs> 
And then it came, the fall. One day on the mauve sofa, there was a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. She called the man at the sofa store and he told her how bad this was. And so she assembled the children, three kids at that time, ages four, two and a half, and six months, assembled the kids to show them the stain on the mauve sofa. And she said to them, see that stain, that red jelly stain? The man at the sofa store says, it ain't coming out for all of eternity. Kids, do you know how long eternity is? That's how long we're going to sit here until one of you tells me who put the red stain on the mauve sofa? There was silence. No one said a word. And then the middle kid cracked. Lauren did it. <laughs> Lauren said, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. And then there was silence again. Complete silence. No one spoke up. And I knew that none of the kids would confess to putting the red jelly stain on the mauve sofa because they had never seen their mom this angry. And I knew none of the kids would confess to putting the stain on the sofa because they knew if they did, they would be in timeout for all of eternity. And I knew that none of the kids would confess to putting the red jelly stain on the mauve sofa because, in fact, I was the one who put the stain on the mauve sofa. And I ain't saying a word. <laughs> I think we can relate to that story. We have all made messes. We have all messed up. And so many times when we do that, we try to hide it. We try to conceal it. We try to cover it up. We try to downplay it. We even blame other people for it. So many times we do that. And that silly little story reminds us of the seriousness of sin. We're going to talk about sin today. We need to talk about sin today. And sin is serious. But so often when we sin, we try to cover it up. We try to downplay it. We try to lie about it and, and deceive others and try to move on like nothing has ever happened. The truth is, here's what sin does. Sin throws you into a deep pit. And rather than giving you a rope, it gives you a shovel. What I mean is, sin has a way of getting us more and more into trouble. It doesn't help us get out of the situation. It only encourages us to dig deeper, to get into more trouble. That is truly the nature of sin. <clears throat> we see that in David's story. David in the Old Testament is known as what? A man after God's own heart. And yet, he didn't always demonstrate the heart of God, did he? He was fully human, he messed up, he made mistakes, he didn't always do the right thing. His story, at least this part of his story, begins in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. You see, we, we notice the first red flag, don't we? I think the writer wants us to see it very clearly. At times, in springtime, at times when kings do what? They go off to war. What is this king doing? He's not going off to war. He's sending someone else to fight his battles for him. He is staying back, staying 
home. You see, so often big mistakes start with small steps in the wrong direction. Small steps that we so easily downplay or rationalize or justify or just simply dismiss. Ah, they can handle the battle without me. I'm getting too old to fight. I have things to do here at home. I'm just going to stick around here. That's what David does. And one night, he can't sleep. He gets up. He takes a stroll out on the roof of his palace, and he sees a woman bathing on the roof of a nearby house. The text says that she is beautiful. And in that moment, David has a choice to make, doesn't he? Will he linger or will he look away? What will he do? We have that choice every day as well, don't we? Will we linger or will we look away? Well, unfortunately, David lingers for our youth group. He doesn't do the eye bounce, right? He double dribbles the eye bounce, I guess. I don't know. He, he lingers. Remember what we said about steps in the wrong direction? Certainly, David does that. But he didn't stop there. He takes another step. David told his people to go find out who is this woman. They say it's Bathsheba daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. You see, I I think just that phrase reminds us of something we need to know and remember. The lust of the eyes, it has a way of blurring one's vision, really blocking one's vision. It has a way of dehumanizing humans. The lust of the eyes doesn't see people as creations made in the image of God, It sees them as objects of desire and satisfaction. David's servants come back and they say, this is Bathsheba. She is a real person. She has a name. She's someone's daughter. She's someone's husband. She's a real person, not an object of desire. But by now, temptation has a stronghold on David. So he takes another step in the wrong direction. He grabs that shovel and keeps digging. Go get her and bring her to me. They brought Bathsheba to David and he slept with her and then he sent her on her way. There's an important note to make here, I think. You see, sometimes people read this story and their thoughts go immediately to Bathsheba. And they try to lay blame on her as if to displace some of the blame from David. After all, he's a man after God's own heart. And so she probably instigated this. Or at least, why is she bathing at that time in clear sight of the palace? Why didn't she refuse his advances? You see, if we go there in this story, we are going a place that the inspired writer does not take us. We are filling in gaps with our own bias. And we're moving away from the original intent. And what is that? That is the epic moral failure of David. He is a king. Last time I checked, kings get whatever they want. Why are we assuming that she could have said no? Why are we laying blame on her? That's not in the story. Maybe it is part of the story, but to assume that is to assume the wrong thing. For David, it gets worse. And for her. Verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. By the way, maybe we should have raised the ages of Bible hour today. I don't know. 
didn't fully think that through. When we, but parents, it gives you something good to talk about with your kids. We need to be talking about these things. Sermon discussion resources, we have them available. Use them. <laughs> he gets word that she's pregnant. That's not the news that David wanted to hear. Can you imagine what is going through his mind? What do I do? What do I do? What are people going to say? What are they going to think about the king? Oh, no. See, that's what sin does. It makes you scramble. It makes you worry. It makes you plot and scheme and deceive. So you just keep digging. For David, panic sets in and he reacts. Comes up with a a quick plan. Send for Uriah, her husband. Bring him back for some quality time with his wife. And then after some time, she has this baby. Everyone will think it's Uriah's baby. Even he will think it's his baby. Problem solved. Except Uriah doesn't feel right about staying at home while his fellow soldiers are out on the battlefield roughing it and fighting for Israel. And so rather than sleeping at home, he sleeps at the entrance to the, to the palace. David asked him about it. This is what he says in verse 11. Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Isn't it interesting that this soldier seems to show more integrity in this moment than the king, than the man after God's own heart? Well, David is still trying to manage this whole thing, still trying to orchestrate the outcome of this whole thing, and he just keeps digging. You see, he wouldn't stop with lust. He wouldn't stop with coveting another man's wife. He wouldn't stop with adultery. He wouldn't stop with deceit and lying. Now he would add murder. So he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with very specific instructions for the commander to put him in the direct path of harm right in harm's way. I mean, think about it. He is sending this man to the battlefield with his own death sentence. And that's what happens. His plan seems to work. Uriah is killed. And so what does David do? He takes Bathsheba as his wife. But if you know the story, you know that they don't live happily ever after. David may have wanted to move on, but God wasn't ready to move on. There was still some unfinished business left to take care of. And we get a peek, a glimpse into God's response to David. Verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. And she, and, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. That line is so important. This thing that David had done displeased the Lord. When David thought no one knew, when he thought he got away with it, he covered it up, he concealed it. Yes, it took some doing, but we can move on now. God knew. God knew what happened. Remember, God is the one who saw straight to David's heart when he chose him, when he anointed him to be king. He can still see straight into David's heart. David knows that God knows that David is messed up. And you and I know that God knows when we mess up. Even when we try to hide, even when we try to conceal and cover up and deceive, God knows. God always knows. It was time for God to step in. It was time for an intervention. 
Time for David's sin to emerge from the dark, shadowy places of his heart and be exposed to the light of day. It was time for a very difficult conversation, a confrontation. So God sends David's trusted friend, Nathan, to David with a story and a lesson. It's more like a case study. Really what it was was a pair of glasses for David to see his own blind spots. So Nathan says, hey, David, I got a story for you. Imagine this. Imagine there is a rich man who has lots of livestock, lots of sheep, but he chooses to take the one sheep that this poor man has, this one sheep that this poor man loves. He takes it from him. How do you feel about that rich guy? And David is outraged. That man deserves to die. He needs to pay reparations to that poor man. And then look at verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. It's you I'm talking about. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had, not, had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. You see, David had dug so far, he was in so deep that he couldn't even see above ground. He couldn't even connect the dots when Nathan is telling him this story. He couldn't see himself and his sin. He had completely removed himself from the situation. Eugene Peterson says that David didn't feel like a, a sinner when he sent for Bathsheba. He felt like a lover. And what could be better? And David didn't feel like a sinner when he sent for Uriah. He felt like a king. And what could be better? But every time, his heart died a little bit more, Peterson said. Part of our mess is that we can't see our mess. Isn't that so true? Part of our mess is that we refuse to see our mess. We are quick to point out each other's messes. I can see your messes very easily and point them out to you. But how often do we point out our own messes? Do we see our own messes? I mean, think about situations you've been in, trouble you've gotten in, choices that you've made. Think about even as a family or a community or a nation or a congregation. Sometimes we find ourselves in messes and yet so often we refuse to see the mess and we just keep adding to it. It almost sounds like where we are today. You see, sin is always messy. David finally begins to see the mess, the mess that he has made. His eyes are finally opened. And once he finally puts down the shovel, he can see what he's been trying to hide the whole time, his sin. And what does he say? Look at verse 13, such an important part of this story. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Finally, after all this digging, after all these steps in the wrong direction, after all this cover-up and plots and schemes, finally, 
just comes out and says it. I have messed up. I have sinned against the Lord. That's right, he had. And the law said that he deserved to die for what he had done. Do you realize that? The law said he deserved to die, but God is a God of mercy, and God spares his life. But the truth is, sin always has consequences. There are always implications for our actions, and quite often when we make bad decisions, it sends a ripple effect throughout people's lives around us. It leaves a trail of death and destruction. Speaking of a trail of death and destruction, did anyone else get educated on army worms this past week? (laughs) What in the world? First we had murder hornets and now army worms. We just need some some pacifist insects to attack sometime, right? Not so violent. Don't be so violent. Several days ago, I saw a dead spot in my yard in the fescue, and I'm thinking, wow, that's weird. That must not be getting water, so I cranked up the sprinkler. A few days later, I noticed another dead spot. Man, I must have put too much water on there. I better crank down the water. I was ignorant. And then, just the other day, I'm in the office, and within 30 minutes, two different people, John and Kent, both talked to me about army worms. I'm like, what are army worms? Well, you need to find out. Well, evidently, I do. So I did. So I go to the store to get the stuff to treat them, and of course, evidently, everyone has army worms because there's nothing in the store. So I'm in full panic mode by now. I finally find some stuff, I treat the yard. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I wonder, I wonder if my neighbors, you know, should I tell my neighbors? And so I just kind of peek over the fence, and they have like this lush green backyard. And I go over to the other side, and I, same thing over there. And then it dawns on me, they treated their yards and sent all the army worms into my yard. <laughs> Why didn't they tell me? <laughs> Why didn't they tell me? So now about half my yard is just brown, but we'll see what happens. You know, there's more important things. That's kind of like sin. It just leaves a trail of death and destruction behind it. And sometimes you need someone to say something to you. You need to be confronted by your sin because you're, you have these blind spots. We have these blind spots. And we just need someone to say something. And it's not that we can't see it, it's that we often choose not to see it. David needed Nathan to say something to him. So God sent Nathan to him, and he said something. And finally, David's eyes were open. But that doesn't mean there wasn't a trail of death and destruction in the wake of David's choices. David and Bathsheba's son is sick. David pleads to God. He begs God to spare his son's life. But his son dies, just as God said he would. How would David respond? His prayers weren't answered. His suffering was not removed. His son did not survive. What would you do? I want you to see what David did. Chapter 12, verse 20. Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He worshiped. Yes, David messed up big time. He left this trail of destruction behind him. But he was still a man after God's own heart. And so what does he do? He enters into the house of the Lord. He gets as close as he physically can to the presence of God 
and he falls down on his face. That's what that word means. He falls down on his face and he worships God. What do you think he says? What do you think he sings or prays or says in that moment of worship? We don't know for sure exactly what he says, but some have suggested that maybe it was in that very moment where he penned the raw and the revealing words of Psalm 51. Maybe it wasn't days or weeks or months or years later. Maybe it was right then and there. Part of the psalm that we read just a moment ago. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. No longer is David praying to change the circumstances. What is he praying to change? Change me, God. Create in me this clean heart. Change me, transform me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. How do you recover when you sin against God? Which, by the way, usually means you're sinning against other people as well. How do you recover when you leave a wake of death and destruction behind you? You respond the same way Isaiah responded. When he came into the presence of God and he realized his unholiness in the presence of a holy God, and he exclaimed, Woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. What do you do? You do the same thing Peter did when he realized that the holiness of the Son of God was in his presence. And he fell at his knees. And he said, get away from me. Lord, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I am broken. I am messed up. Get away from me. You see the contrast. You do the same thing that David did. You go into the house of the Lord and you fall on your face and you worship and you confess. You see, that's what we are to do. Recognize your own sinfulness, especially in light of God's holiness, and humbly worship and confess. Well, did God answer David's prayer? What was... God's response to David. Psalm 30 was written as a psalm of dedication for the temple, but some have suggested that maybe the words of Psalm 30, the roots of Psalm 30, lie in the soil of Psalm 51. Here's a part of Psalm 30. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths. And did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. You, Lord, you brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. When David looked around, and he found himself in this pit of sin, and by the way, he didn't just stumble in there. No one put him in there. He chose to go in there. When he found himself in this pit of sin, God comes along, and God doesn't give him a shovel, does he? He doesn't give him a shovel and say, keep digging. That's not who God is. If that's your version of God, you need to look again. God doesn't give him a shovel to keep digging. 
God doesn't even give him a rope as though it's up to David by his own strength to somehow pull himself out of that hole. What did David say? He said, you lifted me up. You lifted me up. You didn't let me go down to the depths of the pit. That's what God does. That's who God is. So if you have sinned against God, if you have messed up, there is hope. There is hope. It begins with you acknowledging, with you seeing your blind spots, acknowledging your sinfulness, and just bringing it to God, confessing, seeing his holiness in light of your unholiness, and letting that compel you to hold him up and to worship him, and in that worship to confess, God, I am a person of unclean lips. God, I am a sinner. God, I have sinned against you. And God will take it away. Through the blood of Jesus that we just commemorated a few moments ago, he will take that sin away. He will restore his relationship with you. He will redeem your inheritance as his child. Does that mean that all the consequences and implications of your sin will go away? No. Our actions have consequences. But it means that God will forgive us. And that's what we need most. Forgiveness. If today we can help you on that journey to forgiveness, if we can encourage you, if we can hear confession from you, we'd be happy to do that. You can go to our website, reach out there on the prayer page. You can go to the parlor as we stand up in a few minutes. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in there. It's a room right behind me. You can just make your way around to that room or you can come down front. We'd be happy to encourage you, pray for you, do whatever you need us to do. Maybe today you're ready to confess something different. Yes, to confess that you are a sinful person, but also confess your faith in Jesus as the Son of God. You're ready to be baptized into Christ. We'd love to celebrate that decision with you. If there's something we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.